So we continue our sermon series on uh, Paul's letter to the, to the Philippians. And so, you know, it's a letter of joy. And we're reminded to, today that, um, you know, there are only four chapters in Philippians. And out of those four chapters, he mentions joy 14 different times. And so today we come to the third chapter. Each week I've been uh, looking at different. So we're on chapter three today and didn't want to teach on that. And so um, I thought it was interesting in my sermon preparation, I stumbled upon that particular song. Um, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote that song, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 years ago, My Magnificent Obsession. And I thought it fit perfectly because if there was a, maybe a, a tagline for the, the beginning of, uh, of the chapter of the third chapter of Philippians, we, what we get is a taste of what I would call Paul's magnificent obsession. So let me just read a little bit from the, um, from the third chapter of Philippians. And so I have a chance once again, hone in on Paul's magnificent obsession. Here's what he has to say to us today. He says, now all I want is to know Christ and the power that raised him from death. I, I want to share in his sufferings and be like him and even in his death. Then there is hope that I myself may well somehow be raised from death. I don't mean that I'm exactly what God wants me to be. I have not yet reached that goal, Paul says, but I continue trying to reach it and, and make it my, my own. That's, that's what Christ Jesus wants me to do. It is the reason he made me his. Brothers and sisters, I know that I still have a long ways to go, but there is one thing I do. I forget what is in the past and I try as hard as I can to reach the goal before me. I keep running hard toward the finish line to get the prize that is mine because God has called me through Christ Jesus to a life up there in heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen and amen. So I mentioned, you know, um, about a month ago, we were, I was watching the Olympics and I love watching the Olympics. And, and so there was one, um, one race in particular that really got my atti uh, attention because, see, you know, if you're going to be an Olympian, you got to be, have this kind of obsession for winning. I mean, you don't get to that level without, you know, just this continuous, continuous drive. And of course, and of course, um, out of that obsession, um, the goal is obviously, is to win the prize. And of course, a prize is a gold medal. And so um, there was one particular um, athlete that you, we continue to see profiled in the track and field, and his name was um, Noah Lyles. And so Noah Lyles is running the 200 meters, and I think he might have ran another race or two. And so, so he'd been training for five years to be able to get to the Olympics and, um, and to win a gold medal. So this particular race, and I'm going to show you just a clip, um, was the semifinals, and, and he had to, you had to get in the top two to automatically qualify to get in the finals to win the gold medal. So watch what happens. Did you get that? Noah Mile, Lyles, oh my, he finished third. All because, did you see what happened? I was literally, that was one of those, I, I was watching that race and I'm thinking, I was yelling at the TV. What are you thinking? What are you doing? Why are you easing up at the finish line? So he shut it down at the very end and he went from first to third, just like that. So do you know what the margin of winning and, and losing in the Olympics, the margin of victory? It's about that much. 
Because, I mean, it, sometimes it goes down not to one-tenth or one-hundredth. Sometimes it goes down to one-one-thousandth of a second between winning and losing. And I thought, man, what a powerful illustration for us to think. Because what Paul says here to his letter to the Philippians, he says, hey, listen, don't give up. Uh, you keep pressing forward, looking towards the future, and keep pressing forward towards the prize. And he says, and I, what I love about this, um, this is Paul, what I would call his magnificent obsession. His magnificent obsession is winning the prize. And, and for him, winning the prize is, and I love this, and I think this is the greatest one-liner in the whole book of Philippians. He just says, I want, all I want is to know Christ. That's his obsession. All I want is just to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I thought this was really interesting. This happened to me this last week, early in the week. You know, on Tuesday, I'm usually doing sermon prep, or beginning sermon preparation. And on Monday, um, I was beginning to think, because I just want you to know, Saturday and Sunday come around, comes around really quick as a preacher. Okay, so <laughs> got to come up with something new every single week. And so I was Monday, my friend Sue was volunteering in the church office and she comes in my church office and um, knocks on my door or comes to the door and she says, Pastor Harold, she says, I'm just curious. She says, how do you do it every week? And I said, what do you mean? Do what? And she says, well, you know, how do you come up with whatever you do every single week? And, you know, and, I, and she says, would you like plan that out like months in advance? And I said, well, yeah, normally I do. I try to, you know, I start, you know, start several months out and kind of plan out my, my and I showed her kind of my, the sketch of all the, what's coming down the pike and and then she says to me she was about to leave and to go back to the desk and 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 then she says you know what I'm looking for in a good sermon is I just want something that I have something to think about all week and um and I, I thought that was really interesting um in other words what she was saying to me she said I, I just want something that's relevant now, what I thought was really interesting, ironic, I think maybe, you know, you have God things that happen in your life. So I had that conversation and within, I don't know, maybe 15 minutes up comes up on my, on my computer screen, an uh, email. And the email was from Pastor Ellen. And she, was, she sent um, this particular article and it was, um, it was about a recent Gallup poll. And the recent Gallup poll was about people who go to church and the reasons why they go to church and what they're looking for in church and the reason why they stop going to church. And the top two things, the reason what people come to church for is 83% of when people come to church, what they're looking for is they want a sermon that they feel as if it's been taught from the Bible, that they learn something new about the Bible. I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. And 80% said, because you ready for this one? They want something that's relevant. Something when they go home that they can actually think about throughout the week and it kind of challenges them once again in their life and journey for Christ. And I think that's one of the things that I love with the genius of Paul is that he's always trying to make the good news of Jesus Christ relevant to make it life applicable. So what's he draw upon? He draws upon the, the Olympic games because as I shared with you, he was from Tarsus. And of course in Tarsus, they had great libraries, they had great education, uh, institutions to be able to education. They had, um, had all this going on. And one of the things they had was like this Olympic games, they would come. And so he was drawn upon imageries or, or, or things that which people can relate upon. And in this text today, he talks about continue to press on 
towards the prize and not giving up and continue to push towards the goal. And I thought it was really interesting because what, if you look at this particular text that I just read to you, it's only three or four verses. And I thought, once again, the idea of making something relevant and the idea, the, the definition of relevance is important to the matter at hand. And the words that are similar to that are significant, bearing, importance, and germaneness. And so when I, I take that and I apply it to this text today, and so what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to make Christ relevant. He's trying to make his power relevant. He's trying to make hope relevant. He's trying to make this idea of reaching a goal relevant. He's trying to, to keep running hard relevant, to finish strong relevant, to uh, accomplish, to be able to finally get the prize relevant. And the prize is heaven. That's what Paul's doing, trying to make it all relevant. And Paul has one magnificent obsession, to know Jesus Christ. This last week I was watching one of my favorite shows. Y'all gonna think I'm a real dork. I love American Pickers. I, I just love that show. I, you know, that's Mike and Frankie. I don't know if you've ever seen it. You know, these guys, they go all over America and they go through these barns and, you know, I just really relate to that. And it's just so cool because I love American history. So they have this all Americana stuff. This, they pull the stuff. And of course, you really got to know what you're doing because, you know, they, they offer X amount of dollars and you have to kind of really know what you're in order to buy and what offer the right price and they haggle back and forth. So they're really, really good at it. It's just intriguing to me. So this last week I was watching it and I'd never seen this one. All of a sudden, he goes and he's, he's picking this guy who um, was a circus uh, ringmaster. And um, he had all this Barnum and Bailey circus memorabilia stuff that he had been collecting for years, evidently. And, and the, evidently, because at one point, he was, his, his obsession was the circus. When he was 18, he actually was a, it was somewhat very shy, sheltered young man. And he, he'd really never talked to anybody. And then he finally broke out of his shell. And out of all things, guess what he became? He became a preacher. <laughs> Not just any preacher. He was on American Pickers. He was a Methodist preacher. That really got my attention. His name is Jim Lavender. And so Jim Lavender, he had, he was, you know, he, he really loved the circus. The obsession was the circus. He became a ringmaster for the circus. As a matter of fact, I think he worked, actually worked for Barnum and Bailey at one point. And he actually even owned his own circus. He had did one, he would do a circus for in the more secular world. And he would do one in the more sacred world. And when he would do it in the sacred world, he called it the Circus of Hope. And what was very interesting, what I loved about when they showed, started showing pictures on the screen about his life and what he used to do um, in, his, um, in his ministry and actually as a circus master, I thought this was really good. You know, this was his visual aid on Easter Sunday morning, a lion and a lamb. I mean, how do you top that? And that makes my chest look, my chest set look really lame from last week, right? <laughs> I mean, who brings in a lion and a lamb? On Easter Sunday morning, well, Jim Lavender did because he was a circus ringmaster. And what I thought was really interesting as I watched that, that episode this last week of American Pickers and he was interviewing Jim Lavender and he it just seemed like he had an amazing story. He was a preacher for about 35 years. Is that he went around and he took a circus because he was a preacher, but he also continued to work with the circus. And he was always trying to take the message of Jesus Christ and using the circus as a platform in order to make Jesus relevant to people. Relevant. 
I, I thought it was really interesting this week um, as I was thinking about um, this text and, and how we, what Paul is trying to do. You know, once again, he, I, um, um, I thought this was um, interesting how Paul was always trying to make things relevant for the children, of, um, for, for, the, for the Jewish people, but also for the, for the, for the Gentiles. And once again, he, he was always drawn upon this imagery, even though he was back in Rome. He, he had shared this church 10 years before at Philippi, and he was writing back to the Philippians, and there's this conflict going on between them. And he's trying to, once again, focus in on this theme of joy and making even joy, the joy of Jesus Christ, even though he is in prison and thinks he's not sure exactly if he's going to win or he's going to die. Relevant. Joy can be relevant. The joy of the Lord can be relevant. I thought this is a great quote. I don't know if you saw this in the movie um, of uh, The Greatest Showman. It was uh, put out a few years ago. And it's the story of P.T. Barnum. And, and his, one of his, evidently is one of his really good friends, Philip Carlyle. And um, in the movie, this is a quote. Quote, he said, uh, Philip Car- Carlyle was standing next to P.T. Barnum, and evidently some vandals went in, and they actually burned P.T. Barnum's circus to the ground. And they're standing there evidently watching it burn down. And this is what he said, you know, Barnum, when I first met you, I had an inheritance, an acclaim, an invitation to every party in town. And now, thanks to you, all that's gone. All that's left is friendship, love, and work that I adore he says, PT, you brought joy into my life. So I was thinking about that this week. Once again, this idea that Paul is trying to make the good news of Jesus Christ relevant and trying to make the joy of the Lord relevant because he's got this magnificent obsession with Jesus Christ. And what's his obsession? To know Jesus. I, here, here's, let me just teach for a second. So, um, I thought this was very interesting. I, I alluded upon it last year, last week. So there are basically two people, two groups in, in his church that are actually in battle with each other. And the first group were the more conservative Orthodox Jewish people who became Christians. And so they're, they're wanting to think, well, it's okay. It's all about being obedient to the law. And of course we can be Christians, but we still got to be obedient to the law. All 613 of them. And so Paul was like, yeah, okay, we under, I understand about the idea of being obedient to the law, but you don't have to be obsessed with obedient to the law. He says, you know what, do you think that really Christ really cares if, you know, the idea of do you eat shrimp or you don't eat shrimp? Or, you know, idea, you know, um, uh, you know how, how you continue to, you know, think about um, on, on Sunday morning. You know, I got in my car and I drove here today. And once again, that would have been breaking the wall back then, you know, because that's just the way they looked at things. And it was all very regimented. And so Paul says, you're so obsessed with the law. You're missing the grace part. And so he literally gets so frustrated because what, what, what happened is that he would start a church and so the, the conservative part of this other sect of the Christian faith, would they would come in and they would undo everything that Paul had just done to be able to set up this church. And so they would come in right behind him and come off the knees and say, hey, listen, really don't listen to Paul. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. And Paul would say, absolutely, I know what I'm talking about. And so they would literally, once again, you've got to follow our ways. And that became so frustrating to Paul. And so what Paul, what Paul, what's Paul doing in the third chapter of Philippians? Here's the quote. I love this. 
He says, beware of the dogs. He's calling these conservative uh, people that are cutting him off. Um, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil works, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Wow, he doesn't mix words there, does he? Beware of the dogs. You know the reason why he called them beware of the dogs is because the Jewish people used to call the Gentiles dogs. The degrading way. And so Paul flips it on them. And he calls them the dogs. Wow. I, I love this quote from Frederick Beekner. He says, you know, Paul's mads were madder. His blues were bluer. His pride prouder. His humbleness humbler. His strength stronger. His weakness weaker and than, than almost anybody else's. The, and the splash he made when he fell for Christ is audible even still. That's Paul. He didn't mix words. He just called him, hey, you guys are a bunch of dogs. You need to cut that out because you're missing the whole, the whole ballpark when it comes to God's amazing grace found through Jesus Christ. And then you have the other side, which again, in the, in the other part of this, this group, they were called the Libertines. And, and the Libertines had everything to do with, they were actually, um, they were more like the hedonist group. And the, the hedonism is, has everything to do with maximizing pleasure and minimizing your pain. And so the, the, this particular group was on the other end and they didn't really want to follow the laws. I mean, they believed in Jesus Christ, but they also, it's like, everything's happy, happy, happy. We can do whatever we really want. And, and the Paul says, no, you can't do that. That doesn't work either. You can't expect, I mean, after all, they, they crucified our savior and you can't just go through life and expect that everything's about you and about pleasure. There is a sense of sacrifice and there's a sense of service and, and following and being a, a servant of Jesus. Christ. So to go that extreme, that's not right either, Paul says. You're off. You're missing the whole idea about grace and service and sacrifice for him. So Paul is continuing to have this debate with, with these two different people, two different groups of people who are continuing to somehow kind of chisel away at his theology. And Paul continues to come down on grace Matter of fact, what's very interesting is he, he says, listen, and he, he, he talks about his own credentials. And he says, hey, listen, nobody was more Jewish than me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I was even a Pharisee. Listen, don't even talk to me about the whole 613 laws. I totally understand that. But says, hey, listen, once again, you're missing the true essence of the Christian faith. And the true essence of what the Christian faith is, God's amazing grace found in Jesus Christ. So it's not about happy, happy, happy on one side. And it's not about just once again following the, the order of the law and the 613 laws and making sure that everything is completely right and all these other things have to fall in order that you can actually be a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, that's not it either. So let me ask you something. When, when in your life did Jesus become relevant? Because see, here's what I thought this morning on my run. I, I hadn't thought about this, but see, when Jesus becomes relevant to you, all of a sudden you have this magnificent, magnificent obsession of knowing him. So let me just share with you. So, um, you know, Paul and his, he, he goes back and he, 
he kind of outlines, you know, all the things he was being able to accomplish. You know, I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day. That's important. You know, I was, uh, you know, I come from this family and, and I, I was well educated. And he rattles off these things that, you know, gives us his credentials. And he's reminiscent about his life. So I was thinking about my life this last week and I started thinking about, you know, my credentials. Okay, so, you know, um, I was baptized when I was about, about, I don't know, maybe a month old. My grandfather baptized me. I'm a third generation pastor. Been, somebody's been a Methodist preacher in my family for the last hundred years. Check, check, check. I was even the president of my MYF. That makes me really hot stuff, right? And... Um, but I remember as a kid growing up, I think I would have been more of the 613 law kid because I was taught as a little boy, Harold Ray, be a good little boy, be obedient. And so, you know, I went to church every Sunday and I listened to my dad, well, sort of listened to my dad and, <laughs> and you know, I went to church, but I got, I mean, I started getting it. And so, you know what? You know when all of a sudden Jesus became relevant to me? Because here's the interesting thing. As a kid, I remember, I remember beating myself up. I remember going to the playground and I remember one day, I think I swore, I said a cuss word, and I was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old. I, I don't know if I missed the ball or something happened, so I swore, but I didn't even swear out loud. I actually swore like underneath my breath, but I knew that God heard it and he was gonna strike me down dead. <laughs> And this is what was thinking in my mind. I mean, I just kept waiting for the shoe to drop. I was waiting for something to happen in my life because see, once again, I wasn't being obedient. I wasn't being a good boy. And so I, I continued to be obsessive about always trying to be a good boy. And finally, what would happen is that I would feel such great remorse and such great guilt. I would finally get to the place that I would crawl into my father's lap and I would tell him what I had done. And my father didn't pummel me but my father continued to love me. And so how in the midst of my life, and when Jesus Christ became relevant to me as a little child, and I finally started connecting the dots and I realized that God wasn't gonna strike me down just because I did a set of cuss word on the, on, the, on the basketball court when I was six years old. It was at the altar. It was through Holy Communion. All of a sudden, the idea that Christ loved me the idea that, that Jesus Christ was willing to sacrifice his life for me, even at the age of six or seven, all of a sudden by taking communion, Jesus started to become relevant to me. And out of that, I started to develop this magnificent obsession, just as Paul describes in the book of Philippians, the third chapter, all I want is to know Jesus. You know, it's interesting is that um, my son Jordan came home um, for a day this weekend. And I, I, I noticed, and so um, we've been taking care of Marley this weekend. Matter of fact, she was here last night. My granddaughter, she's three and a half. And she sat in the front row. And I just want you to know, she did not, she talked the whole time right during my sermon. I just want you to know. I, you know how hard it is to try to preach right through your granddaughter, talking right through your sermon? And it probably reminded m me of me when I was that age, all right? So I totally get it. So it was fine. It was, it was all good. 
And um, so I, I was just, once again, thinking about the, the idea of where we are in life and how we push through life and how God continues to love us. So um, my daughter, Olivia, will come by to pick, hopefully she's picking up Marley tomorrow. And, um, and so this is good, you know. And, and so my son-in-law will be there and my son Logan's gonna be there and his girlfriend, they're all coming through. They've been a little time away. And you know what, my kids, I found this out, and maybe you've discovered this with your own children. You know what my kids really want to know more than anything in the world? All my kids really want is to know that I love them unconditionally, no matter what they do. No matter if they do great or they totally screw up. The only other one is for me to love them, number one. Number two is this. And I have to continue to remind myself almost every single conversation I have with all five of my children over and over and over again. Not only do I tell them I love them, but I tell them I'm, I'm proud of them, that I'm so grateful for them. I just, and you know what they need is they need that affirmation in life. And we all need affirmation in life. Believe me, I, I love affirmation rather than the Monday morning email. I love affirmation. I you, and you, I, I, even at the age of 58, I still love affirmation. So, so they want to know that I'm proud of them. Here's the third thing. They want to know, and this applies to all of us, that I'm willing to accept them just the way they are. I, I love this quote um, from Adrian Rogers who said this, and I thought this is just a great theological quote. Accept God's acceptance. Grace is God's acceptance of us. Faith is our acceptance of God accepting us. Man, that's good. So, so my kids want me, they, they want me to, to know, they want to know that I love them. They want to know that I'm proud of them. They want to know that I'm willing to accept them for just the are. Here's what I, I've done in my life, and I don't know, but you all have done this as parents. So some, sometimes in our lives, I, I found myself trying to move them to be more like me, which is a little scary, Right? But see, I've had to be able to back off, realize as they got older that I have to accept them for just who they are and the way that God created them. And the fourth thing they really want, I just want you from me, is they really want a great Christmas bonus in their Christmas stock. And that's what they really want, right? You get it. And so I think that one of the beautiful things that we find in our theology, the Apostle Paul, he's getting at it. Is that Christ is one, and this once again, you have this, these two people, these two groups that are fighting back and forth, and Paul's trying to give them this, this imagery that Jesus, once again, making the gospel relevant to them, and what's really relevant is the idea of bringing this imagery, and he uses this prize, this, like this athlete pressing towards the goal, and the goal is to win the prize, and the prize is ultimately to know Jesus Christ. And that he accepts us just the way that we are. Accept our acceptance. I think this is really interesting. I found this this last week. So the, the Greek word for righteous, and he talks about righteous in this text. Um, and I thought it was very interesting because the word righteous has to do with the Greek word. It, it could either mean translated to be right or standing uh, in a right standing with God, but it also can be translated in the word righteous or right. It means to, to be accepted 
or the approval of God. So Paul talks about wanting to be right or in the right relationship or this idea of righteousness and he, it all comes down to the idea of being accepted or approved by God. I love this quote, I found this last one. I don't know who said it, but I found it. My past will inform me, but it will not deform me. My past will educate me, but it will not devastate me. And so what I found in my life is that I continue to, once again, kind of beat myself up and I wanted to live up to expectations and I wanted to be able to, once again, be a good little boy. But I realized that, you know, no matter how hard I tried to be good, it was never good enough. And so when all of a sudden, when I came to the altar and began to take communion as a little boy, all of a sudden, Jesus Christ became relevant and I started developing this uh, magnificent obsession. So Paul's magnificent obsession with, was about knowing Christ, about serving Christ, about sharing Christ, about learning more about Christ. So I, I'm, I, I think which is really powerful, and he talks about, and here, let me sum this up. At the very end, he talks about not looking to the past, but Paul talks about looking to the future. Oh, I can relate to that. This great glorious future that we have with Jesus Christ, the prize of heaven. You know, it's many of us, and we've all struggled. We've all struggled in our lives at some point in our life, and many of us maybe are struggling right now with something. Anyway, I think it was really interesting, I found this last week. You know, Martin Luther, who was one of the greatest theologians who led the, Mar- the Reformation movement. I mean, this is, Martin Luther was a big deal. But do you realize that even Martin Luther struggled with pressing forward to get to the prize? Do you realize, you know what his problem was? Struggled with depression. He would have to get up, literally look himself in the mirror, and he had to remind himself. He would say, Martin Luther, you are baptized. You're a child of God. And he had to continue to remind himself that he was a child of God, that, that Christ, he would continue to press towards the future and the prize. And knowing Jesus Christ. So here's, the, here's, the, here's how I close this today, and then we're going to have um, beautiful communion. Because I tell you what, communion is relevant. Can we amen on that? Because... The relevancy of the communion leads us to this magnificent obsession with Jesus Christ. So here, here's what I thought this last week. And I, uh, um, you know, I, I brought my little tape measure with me today. And um, so um, when they crucified Christ, and I reminded you all, um, you know, we always had this image of Christ being, you know, crucified way up high, but chances are he was probably crucified very close to the ground. It's the reason why we know that, you know, Mary and John, when they're listening, they could listen to the conversation. We have this documented. It was in, it's in the Gospels. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they didn't know what they do. And, and when he's looking down upon the cross and he's talking to the one that he loved, John, he says, listen, behold your mother. Take care of my, basically take care of my mother. And, and so we, we know that Jesus was fairly, probably only like three feet off the ground. But you know what's interesting I started thinking about this week? Do you know that probably how tall Jesus was? He was probably a little bit over five feet tall. Now we don't know exactly, but back then men weren't near as tall as they are today. So I'm five foot nine. And so, 
so, and probably Jesus is probably maybe five, five, one, maybe somewhere, maybe five, four at the max. And, and part of the reason why probably he was even maybe not really, really tall is because he was, when he was younger, here's a really thought, okay? He was poor. So do you think that maybe Jesus got all the right nutrients as he was a child growing up? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe he suffered from some form of malnutrition. I don't know, but, but we do know that Mary and Joseph were very poor from the very get-go. So if Jesus is only like a little bit over five feet tall, five one, so when Jesus was dying the cross and he reached out his arms, how far is that? Because your wingspan is related to how tall you are. Five feet. Jesus opens up the, his arms and he offers his grace. And what's the length on that? About five feet. What's the distance between winning and losing in the Olympics? About that. What's the distance between winning and losing eternity? Gaining or losing it? Well, it comes down to one word. In other words, what Jesus, when he opens up his arms and it's about five feet, he's saying, will you accept my acceptance? This grace and love and hope, mercy, joy that I have for you? It comes down to really one word or two words, it's your option. We call it free will. Yes or no. And yes or no, they're very small words, aren't they? The margin of victory, of winning everything, eternal life. That's the distance. So we come today humbly, and my hope for all of us today, as we take communion, is that through communion, Jesus Christ becomes relevant. And my hope for all of us as we walk out this door, that we all have a deeper appreciation for what I would call this magnificent obsession of knowing Jesus and accepting Jesus and his amazing grace. Amen? Amen.